This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff. We are now at episode number 80. And as always, thanks for listening. We have a great one for you today. We're meeting with Dr. Natasha Stovall, who wrote the very important article, Whiteness on the Couch. I, you know, I've been thinking after I first read it, I've been thinking about it for a long time and just uh, reached out to Natasha. And, you know, she just was wonderful about making time. And this is just a really important conversation. And I, I think you're going to really enjoy this. Uh, before we get there, I have a quick announcement. I'm on Patreon, and I just wanted to let you know that um, what I'm doing is kind of creating content and putting it on Patreon for patrons, so uh, people that are interested in supporting my work. And so, for the cup of or price of a cup of coffee a month, you can get some content. Uh, 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 you know that I'm doing. I just posted something on the common discourses around sex that you find in the therapy room, uh, which I, I took some of the work of uh, Dr. Chris Donahue, a former guest on this podcast, and kind of broke it down and talked about some of those discourses, uh, not all of them, but some of them you're going to find uh, it, while working in the therapy room, talking about sex and the influence of sex and the influence of sex in our culture. So I think you'll find that helpful, and you, you're going to get podcasts early. Uh, I'm going to do another thing. I, I'm filming something on uh, Way of Being uh, this weekend, and I hope to have that up on the Patreon site this week. So if you're interested in just kind of checking out some of the content that I'm going to be putting together f- for the price of a cup of coffee, go to Patreon and search The Radical Therapist and go find me there. And your support, of course, is always appreciated. So uh, without further ado, I mean, let's get to our show. Uh, Dr. Natasha Stolvo is a writer and a clinical psychologist and the director of Parent Works, practicing in New York City. She does a lot of other things, um, but very interesting, very uh, wonderful writer. So uh, without further ado, let's meet Dr. Stolvo. All right, Dr. Stolvo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Yeah, thanks for being here and making the time. I I really loved your article, Whiteness on the Couch, and I think it's so important. So I appreciate you taking the time to Thank meet you. with us. Yeah, and um, I'm just going to get right into it. Um, you start your article pointing to an old saw about therapy that the thing you don't talk about is the thing and that uh, you meet mostly with white people struggling with all sorts of problems and you talk about everything except being white. And I guess, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I guess on um, to begin with, I think that's sort of how we're trained. Like I'm a, a, a therapist and I'm also a white woman. And so, or, you know, another way to put it is a non-black or brown or non-person of color woman assigned at birth female and uh cis you know hetero woman and um you know i think in the the world that i was raised in we actually talked a lot about race and race relations which is what you know in the 70s when i was born and you know 70s and 80s that was sort of the language that my family used in the you know i guess as a culture we mostly used that you know, at least in the culture that I was had access to. Um, 
but we didn't talk about being white exactly, you know, or, or, or we wouldn't talk about how the fact, the culture that we were raised in, which is very much a white European descended culture would contribute to the problem of racism, you know, and racial, racial inequality, racial trauma, uh, racial violence. You know, we just didn't talk about that. We talked about the fact that there were these problems and that the white people who created these problems were not us, you know? Mm. I mean, we were not from the, 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 the places that we considered racism or, you know, uh, racial inequity to be coming from. Mm. We were from the other side of that. Mm. And, we, and that was part of how we imagined ourselves as white people. So I guess what I'm getting at is that when people come to therapy, especially most of the people I work with who would identify themselves as liberal, you know, about caring about racism, not feeling racist, certainly not overtly, although I think at this point there's fewer and fewer people who would identify themselves as, yes, I'm racist, right. you know, and I feel good about it or I feel okay with it or that's just how it should be. But most of the people that I work with, I think, would identify themselves as people who are against racism. But it's not something that they want to talk about necessarily in therapy. I mean, now people are more bringing it to therapy, but for the most part, it's just something that wouldn't come up. Right. So maybe since I wrote the article, I'll say that, that um, I don't know if I would say we don't talk about being white as much as we don't talk about racism as a subject, hmm. but in, encapsulated in that is the fact that white people are the ones that keep racism going. Yeah, right. Okay, and you also write that depending on who you are, the question of whiteness falls somewhere between obvious and sacrilege, and I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Well, I think that I learned a lot about that, both in my kind of growing up and, and being lucky enough to grow up in a pretty integrated world in the sense that I grew up in Washington, D.C. I went to public schools. I went to a church. I lived in a neighborhood that was mostly African-American. I went to a church that was mostly African-American, went to schools that were mostly African-American and Latino. And so the idea that um, white people had like their own funny ways, in addition to being racist, you know, but also just kind of like, I mean, I, I guess this is the ultimate stereotype, but like not dancing well, but like right. also just kind of like, being individualistic or kind of not having big parties or like, you know, having different music, different socializing, different food. Like that was not a foreign concept because of course, when you're not in the majority, then that becomes more, that's a more comfortable concept, hmm. you know, like that, that um, you're different. We're different. We're all different. We're all still here sharing this space, but you know, like difference is normal, I guess. And yeah. so it was more normalized that white people had their own differences. So like in that context, that felt like obvious, right. you know? And then in other contexts, like I've noticed in some of the responses to my article, you know, I guess I'm, I'm talking mostly about responses from white people, sure. you know, like that this is very wrong. Like it's racist in and of itself to say that like, white people are at all different that, uh, you know, to point well, you've been, out you've been getting those kind of responses. Yeah. I get those responses sometimes. Yeah. I mean, not directly yeah. from people, you know, face to face, 
but I do, I do see that online. Sure. And I hear of those responses, but also I think some, and then some people of color also have said like, you know, it just seems like this is an over-focusing on whiteness, which I think is a different kind of response, you know, because it's not the same as saying there is no difference. But I think the fact that there's just a lot of different responses on a huge spectrum when you start to talk about whiteness as something other than just like sort of the equivalent of, of, of racist behavior or racist thought or racist, mm-hmm. you know, um, stru- structural racism, to me as a psychologist and a therapist sort of mirrors these kinds of um, disorganized, like kind of traumatic reactions that you see in people or in populations when there's been, there's something really wrong mm-hmm. happening, you know, like people's responses to trauma or to any kind of um, collective upheaval is often like initially at least a very disorganized kind of like, Oh my God, what's happening here? Mm. You know, like I can't deal with it. Like one person, you know, freaks out and starts running around and screaming and another person goes hides in a corner. And so that's, Mm. that's why I said that. That's what I was thinking about. Got it. Well, just for everybody, maybe that's listening and, you know, because it's a tricky one, you know, what is whiteness? I mean, how would you conceptualize whiteness or, Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it is a tricky one because I think that it's multiple things at once and it's also nothing, mm. you know, like, <laughs> um, like whiteness is actually not anything except, you know, the amount of melanin that's in your skin, you know, on some level, that's all it is, right. you know, and that's when we talk about white privilege, like that's how it's assigned usually is simply by whether or not someone's skin is light enough to look like they belong to this group that is, is kind of organized around the amount of melanin in your skin. Mm -hmm. And of course, some people don't necessarily fully meet that categorization in terms of their, their socialization, you know, meaning people who are passing as white, you know, but, but, you know, like, I guess technically would be considered, you know, in a different category, but, at the end of the day, this is a, just about a biological fact that has only to do with your skin color. But it's, so it's a, a, a biological thing that's been turned into a s- social construct, but it also is like something that really our society that we live in in America and in many other parts of the world has actually become an organizing construct, mm-hmm. you know, for the society. So that's like the most obvious part. You know, in terms of the psychology, like it's both racism you know, like that's probably the most urgent aspect of white, of whiteness that needs to be addressed is like this kind of like way in which the amount of melanin in your skin then determines what you have access to, whether or not you're able to go to a decent school, have safe housing, have health care, have access to good food, have enough money to buy these things. You know, like in our society, it is a determinative factor of like health and well-being, you know, and livelihood, life itself. Mm. Um, On another level, I think it also is a way of psychologically organizing ourselves and it's organized around power. Mm. So that's something that um, I quote in the article, um, Neil Altman, who's a psychoanalyst, wrote that, but many other people have written that as well. Like this is about who has power, hierarchy, 
who gets to be at the top, who gets to be at the bottom, and that that's a way of thinking about ourselves as social interpersonal beings that goes way beyond skin color. It's something that is sort of has to do with how we're parented, how we socialize our children, how we interact with each other, even if there are only white people around, Hmm. you know, and I think that's an important aspect of whiteness that has to do with, it always still, I think has to do with an other but it has to do with a habit and a kind of way of imagining the world where there always is a scapegoat. And sometimes the scapegoat is external to the group. And sometimes it's internal to the group. And sometimes it's internal to the family. And sometimes it's internal to the self, Hmm. you know, and I think when you're a therapist and you work with mostly white people, a lot of times what you see is a lot of anxiety and a lot of this harsh inner critic and a lot of self hate and self loathing And that's very endemic to our culture and our socialization and acculturation as white people. And it does have to do with othering. And it's a big part of our culture. And it is inherently connected to othering black people in America. And in Europe, it was inherent to othering other populations like Jews and in the colonial sphere. And, you know, I think there's a lot of ways you can kind of read it. And it certainly has always been in the service to capitalism and making money and kind of like an exploitative, you know, kind of extractive economic model. But internally on the psychological level, it lives in this kind of like self-loathing, self-othering, othering within the family, you know, like the, the psychological building blocks that make that all seem totally normal, even though when other groups have come into observation of us, like Africans, you know, during the slave trade or First Nations or Native people during the settler period here, they saw us as quite odd and other and strange and dysfunctional, Hmm. you know? And so, and I think that's, you know, probably true. Hmm. I mean, it looks true to me as a therapist. (laughs) That that was wonderful. Um, Description. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Thank you. Yeah, that was uh, okay. So you write in the kind of in the face of blatant white racial aggression, which we're experiencing, there's a reflexive instinct among white people to proclaim, you know, hashtag, this is not us. But a deeper self asks, how much of this is us? If it is us, who are we? And I wonder if you could say more about that idea. Well, it's funny, because when I wrote that, I wrote the first part of it. And then my editor at Long Reads was like, I want you to add that last sentence. So in some ways, that last sentence is sort of a separate thing that Mm -hmm. has to do with like, what does white mean? Mm -hmm. Sort of what I was just talking about. Like, who are we? Like, are we, you know, like, because I mean, if you think about white people in the US, there's a huge amount of variety. Like we're very heterogeneous and yet we're all unified in some ways in this group, which then is put over and privileged over 
and hoarding resources or hoarding some level of, you know, and again, there's a huge variety of how much people, you know, how much one white person has privilege and safety and access and resources varies tremendously from another person. So it's like very heterogeneous, yet we all enjoy this like membership in this club that then is like kind of held in superiority to all the other clubs. Right. You know, the sort of artificial division based on something that isn't real. But I think that that does get at what the first part of the, the, the paragraph is about or the question, which is like, um, you know, we're all, let me think about how to say this. Like, I think that often when we have these violent incidents, which I sort of list this long line of incidents, you know, going back, you know, hundreds of years Mm -hmm. that on a sort of more instinctual kind of like visceral, um, you know, almost like a, um, you know, neurological level, like the nervous system level, people, you know, human beings react to kind of overt cruelty and violence with horror. And, you know, kind of, I mean, unless they're extremely sadistic, usually it's, you know, it's not a pleasurable experience to see like a teenager fire hosed, you know, or, you know, a man being murdered in front of his own daughter, you know, like, even though obviously, we know from history that there have been people who have turned up to watch that kind of thing collectively. And that's part of our history as European Americans, like lynchings and then going back to uh, Europe with witch hanging, witch burnings. And, you know, like we do have a long history of gathering to watch violent events. I mean, we're still kind of doing it. And so like, that's a piece of this too. But I think that there is generally this collective recoiling from the very obviousness of the kind of racial hierarchy where, you know, over and over again, there's this like, kind of like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, like this is awful. Um, And the, the, I think that has to do with cognitive dissonance and how much cognitive dissonance is something that is sort of baked into whiteness or being raised white or bred white, as I talk about Mm -hmm. Reverend Thandeka in the article talking about um, that, you know, like the socialization of whiteness requires a level of cognitive dissonance, you know, and tolerating cognitive dissonance. And I mean, I think it's, and so sometimes these events will break the cognitive dissonance and people can't maintain it anymore. And then one reaction is to deny like, well, that's not part of who I am because like the science of cognitive dissonance is really about how do you lower cognitive dissonance? Usually when people are faced with a situation where the cognitive dissonance is too high, their reaction is to try to lower it by any means necessary, so to speak. Like, and usually the lowering it, I don't think I'm explaining this too well, but a lot of times when people think of cognitive dissonance, they think of like, oh, I'm aware of things like aren't sitting right with me, so then I'm going to change it. Mm -hmm. But actually, the science of cognitive dissonance is about the fact that when people become aware that they have two thoughts that are incompatible with each other, they just basically try to change their thinking so that they continue doing the same thing over and over again. So rather, usually, rather than making a change, people just kind of like lie to themselves in a different way. 
you know, or like kind of devalue something that previously they thought was valuable in order to keep on like doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I do need to think of some better examples of how to explain cognitive dissonance. But I think that what I'm getting at here is like, in order to be white, you do have to tolerate a level of cognitive dissonance that from the outside is hard to understand. And then it becomes harder for white people themselves to to deal with it when it's so obvious. So one way to deal with it is to say, oh, that's not us. I'm not that kind of white person, or this isn't what America is. I mean, this whole debate about the 1619 Project is really about the cognitive dissonance that it brings to the surface, especially in people who are interested in American history, who are who really don't want to look at how brutal and unfair and not, you know, about liberty American history has been. And so are really doubling down on the idea that like, A, it must not be as bad, like this must be lies, or B, it had to be this way, because that's the only way we could have you know, or we could have done what we did, or we, whoever we is, right? Mm. And then also another strategy, which I think Tom Cotton is sort of getting a lot of notoriety right now because of what he's talking about, Senator Tom Cotton saying that, you know, like, well, that's in the past. Mm. Like, we don't need to think about it anymore. And all of that is ways of dealing with cognitive dissonance. And Mm. so like, this is not us is one way but then I think it's hard to keep going with that level of cognitive dissonance without a sort of the, the voice inside being like, but what about, you know, like, and that's why I think we continue to go through this cycle is we're not listening to that little voice. That's like, something seems wrong here. Yeah. You, know? you have me thinking of, um, there's Ken, I don't know, Dr. Ken Hardy. He's an academic, yeah. right? Oh, you, you're familiar. Okay. Yes, Family yeah. therapist. And he talked about, I heard him somewhere talking about, you know, when he sees like an unarmed black man getting killed, for example, that that's an, an, an image of his symbolic self in some ways, right? So he right, gets to see yeah. that over and over again. And I'm thinking like as a white person, white male, you know, you know, I'm my symbolic self is the cop with the knee on the neck, right? And that there is some effect to that, right? And, and, right. and if we yeah. don't acknowledge it somehow, you know, like you said, it's going to keep the loop going. Right. And it's such a hard thing mm-hmm. to make sense of on an identity level and I think that's why uh which is not to say that people can't try harder you know and can't try to reach out more when you know like that we can't intervene in the lives of people like Derek Chauvin earlier Mm -hmm. so that they don't become these murderous police officers and you know and I think that the 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 abolish the police theory is that like being a police officer, period, is going to create these problems. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the police, you know, by definition, placing someone in that position is going to limit their choices to the extent that inevitably there's going to be. Um, you know, especially in a country like the U.S., where we have such a long cultural history of policing in a violent way, mm-hmm. you know. So... You know, I, I think that, um, you know, dealing with that aspect of our identity in concert with like, rec- you know, kind of creating some interventions and structures that are going to make it harder for, you know, police and other people in positions of authority to have the power to just kill at will is a very important part of the work and the struggle that's happening right now. 
actually is I think recognizing that that kind of identity is there and it, you can't just kind of like implicit bias training it away right, right. is and, and is a big part of, of, of kind of the demands right now coming from people who are, are addressing racial injustice. Uh, and on top of that, that's why I think our field needs to be more involved or more intentionally involved because I think that there's a lot in the work that therapists do that can be useful here, you know, and a lot of science that can be useful here. Yeah. And you, that leads me into my next question, really, you critique the silence about whiteness in most therapies and the psychology field in general. And you write how therapists rarely think to question the role of racial identity in their white patients' lives. I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Well, I work with a colleague and a friend named Francesca Maxime, and I'm going to recommend her website at the end of this because she has a ton of great resources. But, um, but you know, she she talks a lot about how you know in psychology and in therapy, like we have this opportunity to kind of explore um, things with like racial injustice with clients, but the therapist has to do their own work first. Like the therapist can't kind of do work if they don't have a sense that they have something to guide you into. I mean, that's why we have all this training, right? Like where you don't, you don't just go into therapy. I mean, you shouldn't just go into therapy, especially in something as complicated as sort of like racial socialization and racial trauma you know, just like winging it. And yet that's where we are as a field. Like there's no, there's very little training. And the training that there is, I think is really like, there is a lot of work that's been done around sort of multicultural therapy and multicultural um, psychology and trying to understand how to give culturally competent treatment Hmm. to people of color and to different populations who are not sort of from the dominant culture. But in terms of like sort of looking at the other side of it, which is like, what is it that white clients need to stop creating the conditions that, you know, are traumatizing and that are creating structural racial injustice and economic injustice and all the different kinds of injustices that are so endemic in our society there's nothing, you know, there really is literally nothing organized, even though within our field, there's like a long history of looking at these issues Mm. and kind of doing science and, and, and kind of like exploring and trying out different interventions or just theorizing about it. But the interesting thing is that I think without sort of intending to our field has also touched on a lot of this stuff, like for example, cognitive dissonance or the Zimbardo project or, you know, putting people, you know, in, in the, you know, the, the prison cells with the prison guards and, and seeing what happened, giving people, you know, doing like a play acting of a prison situation and seeing what happens. Yeah. Um, you write that, you also write that as, as, as be, be awareness builds, right, that white racial awareness builds, the other side of the cycle starts to spin. And I'm wondering if you could say more about what that other side of the cycle is. Well, I guess like at this, there is sort of this greater understanding in this moment, maybe than ever before that like, when it comes to any kind of injustice, 
in the US, but I think this could be quite cross-cultural too, there will be gains made by people who are more marginalized, you know, for more rights, more access, you know. Um, well, I guess where we should start before that, like, so there will be these, um, you know, there, I don't know sort of where it's the chicken or the egg, but there's like oppression and then there's pushing back against oppression and there can be like victories in that, you know, like we could look at, um, you know, the slave rebellions and then the civil war and, you know, um, you know, and then reconstruction and then the civil rights movement and, and, you know, now black lives matter. And, but in between those cycles of kind of like, you know, where there's uh, gains in, you know, kind of acknowledging that like everyone has right, certain basic human rights and like kind of like a more equal distribution of, of resources, which I would sort of equate to like mental health in an individual, right? Like, so in between those gains, there are then these backlashes and these backslidings and like the kind of like attempt to reassert a more kind of like top down power. Mm. People stay in their places like you don't get to be fully human. Only some of us get to be fully human. You know, some of us have to be at the bottom. Some of us have to be at the top. Like, you know, so there's a sort of back and forth. And it's sort of like an, a, a manifestation collectively of an individual psychology of someone's like if you have in treatment with someone and you're you're um, you're working with them to undo some of their more self-destructive patterns. Um, you see this kind of like two steps forward, one step back kind of pattern, you know, like they'll, there's, and, and the, the, this one step back is the resistance. Like the part of us that does not want to be healthy, the part of us that does not want to be kind of more free. And, you know, do we have that because we have some kind of, you know, kind of like self-hating kind of internal structure that's been imposed on us by, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the forces are in our socialization and our culture that kind of is like a self-sabotaging, self-defeating kind of, um, you know, uh, organization that then pushes back against like sort of this more full bodied mental health. Like, I'm not sure, but I think on a collective level, there really is um, a way in which like European, the European influence is often to kind of like, is essentially to kind of create a very unsustainable, uncomfortable, unhealthy kind of social organization where there's like a few people at the top and most people at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's been true since very early in our origins. I mean, I'm not sure where you go back to in Europe or the European, the larger European continent, when you get back to a time when we were more like kind of an, an equal, a more, a, a more sustainable society, you know, with less kind of like top down oppression. And I think like we are growing as a sort of species in some way, you know, in some way towards at least as Europeans as a, to a more egalitarian way of, of thinking of ourselves. But I think in other cultures, there are definitely precedents of cultures where there was more egalitarian or certainly different kind of ideas about what it meant to li live a human life that didn't involve a lot of exploitation and certainly not on the mass scale that it's always been conceived of in the European mind. Right. And so I think like, 
there are ways of thinking about human life that don't have to be as uncomfortable and intolerant and kind of filled with anxiety and depression and, and, you know, borderline dynamics, you know, as we see in the U S but it's hard for us to imagine that because it really goes very deeply into our psychology and very far back in our histories. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, kind of moving into the part about like, what do we start doing? <laughs> you write that anti-racism interventions geared toward motivated white participants often hit a predictable snag. And I guess I, what are, in, in your mind, what are some of the common pitfalls that happen even for motivated white par- participants? Well, I guess I have mixed feelings about getting into this side of it because it, it does sort of focus more on the the kind of like what isn't working versus what can work. Right. And because I think that it really varies a lot. Like I think that the more, I think the trouble with working on racism in a sort of larger scale way, especially in kind of trainings is that so much of people's feelings around white people's feelings around racism are so deep seated you know, and really like kind of part of what we and they conceptualize as like kind of positive things about themselves, Mm. that when you get into a public situation and people are being asked to kind of look at things and like the, the cognitive, look at things in a much more kind of look at it from the point of view of the people of color in this system the cognitive dissonance gets raised very quickly Mm. and people often double down on being defensive. And so that sort of derails the entire thing. Like if it's the, the goal is to get people together and sort of have a difficult conversation. A lot of times that's running right up against people's resistance to having to see themselves, like you said, as like a Derek Chauvin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's very frustrating, especially for people who have kind of voluntarily engaged in anti-racism work or just anybody who is a person of color in the environment, you know, for whom like this is just reality. And the fact that this is something that these white people have just been insulated from, right. you know, it, I think it's sort of maybe almost inconceivable. Like, why can't you just look at this and own it? And yet it also is sort of part of human psychology that people have a really hard time looking and, and owning things that, are very ugly parts of themselves. And I think as a therapist, like when you know that when you work with someone and they've got a really sort of ugly, shameful part of themselves that they're gonna have to deal with before they become less dysfunctional, just telling them what's wrong, especially in the first session and being like, just face it, just deal with it. Like it just doesn't work very well, which is too bad. And I think some people really feel like you should be able to do that. And there's some therapies that really like offer that, but I'm skeptical because that's not my experience. Mm -hmm. You know, working with people who have deeper pathology is like, that's the last thing you want to do, especially if they're white and fairly successful in their lives. That's an extremely well-defended group, especially because they have enough privilege to avoid things. Like the consequences will not be severe enough for them quite a ways until maybe later in life. You know, yeah, right. Which also touches on sort of like the way in which whiteness and narcissism are very intertwined because narcissism is, you know, as a personality organization, is sort of notoriously resistant to therapy Mm. because, like, 
people like generally are okay with like the results that they get being narcissistic. And if they aren't happy with the results, they can just blame someone else for it. And that works fine. <laughs> so again, that's like another piece of it, you know, but I think it's hard for people who are white and don't have that kind of commitment to having a positive self-image no matter what, and for people of color because it's infuriating. Mm -hmm. And I don't blame them for being infuriated. And I also think in terms of anti-racism work in therapy, that's a place where white therapists really can make a big difference is by, you know, kind of like using the tools that we already have that were probably developed because like white people have a problem being white, you know, <laughs> so you can just like solve it. <laughs> using therapy in some ways, you know, not right. solve it, but right. I think you can make some inroads there. Yeah, great. Okay, you write that in your years as a therapist, you have often recognized white patients as being out of fruitful communion with the depths of their beings. And I'm wondering if you could say more what, what you mean by this. Well, that's a line from James Baldwin. Yeah. And so that was actually James Baldwin's observation, mm -hmm. which is sort of like, you don't seem to be doing that great with your mm -hmm. whiteness. Right. Like, you're <laughs> like, like you're, you're really doing a great job oppressing everyone else. Like you get an A plus for being oppressive yeah. and, you know, hurting people and killing people and like making everyone who's a person of color miserable, but you don't seem like you're doing that great. Like you, and that's sort of like, I mean, James Baldwin is like, it's interesting how powerful, like I think, you know, I, his brilliance is like, doesn't diminish over time, mm -hmm. which I think is just a testament to, you know, what a major sort of player he was as a, a um, you know, a man of letters and like a, an intellect and an American, you know, and an American thinker. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, he's just like, it's hard to, to overestimate how much he kind of like saw who we are and where we are and where we were going. Um, but, you know, he just observed over the course of a couple decades, like that, you know, white people also were kind of suffering in a much different kind of way, but that like, there's the suffering of white people was part of why white people were then oppressive, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he made that link, which many other people have made, but, but, you know, to some descent before and certainly since, and so his take was like, you're giving up really being alive in order to be oppressors, mm. you know? And that's, I think, what he was getting at with that quote was like, you're giving up what makes you fully human in order to be a really great oppressor and a great extractor and exploiter. And so you get the rewards of that, which are monetary and material, but you pay for it in your soul. Right. And... You know, I think as a therapist, I certainly observe that. And as I said in the article, I didn't really think of it as being a product of whiteness. But now that I sort of think of it that way, it does seem quite obvious, you know, like that the cost of having to be sort of on the white side of this oppressive racial hierarchy is that you experience a lot of anxiety, you experience a lot of depression, you experience a lot of imposter syndrome, although that seems to be something and all of these things are, are suffered by everyone in this system. Mm -hmm. It's just important for white people to make a connection that part of the reason they're having 
the negative feelings they're having is not just because, you know, they hate their husband or, you know, they um, hate their job or their kids hate them or, you know, like they just are anxious. That's just how they are. Like part of it is structural. And I think a lot of like the, the work that I've been doing lately is sort of helping the white people that I work with recognize the structural barriers that they face living in this world and making that connection back to like this larger, you know, kind of struggle for liberation, mm -hmm. you know, that's happening in the Black Lives Matter movement, that's happening in the Trans Lives Matter mo movement, that's happening, you know, in many, you know, Immigrant Lives Matter movement, like all of these different movements for, you know, being allowed to be fully human in the world that you live in are connected to an internal experience of not feeling fully human. And that's something that I think that's shared by a lot of the white clients that I work with. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. A couple more questions. Um, are you hopeful? You know, I find, so I think that hope is sort of both overrated and underrated, sure. you know, in maybe human psychology in general, but in, in human experience, but maybe also in, um, especially in like American race relations or American, you know, the struggle for like liberation and racial justice. Um, and, you know, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh who said like, he really f was suspicious of hope, like mm -hmm. that he found it to be like very like misleading, like people need to learn how to be in the moment they're to be in and not always be kind of hoping for something better in the future because it's just taking you out of the present. Mm, true. And I also find it interesting how often this question gets put to black activists and, you know, activists of color in general. Like I remember a few years ago when Ta-Nehisi Coates' book came out and he was being interviewed everywhere and people kept asking him, did he have hope? Like, give me mm. hope. Can I, you know, should I have hope? Can we have hope? And, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, like in some ways, like maybe, I mean, I think hope is necessary for humans to survive. Like, I do think that like a lot of times it's very hard. I mean, I think it's a good goal to try to be in the present moment, no matter what, since that that's all we have anyway, like we are in the present moment, no matter what, but it is a coping mechanism. And I think there are times when I feel like, I don't know if I can be like as strong as not Han or Pema Chodron or somebody who's like, you don't need hope. <laughs> like, <laughs> just be with it. Right. It's like, oh, I can't. But at the same time, I think that like, I'm not sure if hope is really that helpful in, in, in kind of like this moment when it comes to race and when it comes to white people, because I think we sort of have a fetishization of hope as part of our, the way we we organize ourselves right mm -hmm. we're very i mean that's sort of a white supremacy uh you know kind of standby is like well the future will be better right just work really hard in this life and the mm -hmm. afterlife will be better just work really hard and then you'll get that you know just go in there and like you know punish the people who work under you because it's going to be worth it because then you'll retire and everything will be fine like just keep on doing what you're doing oh, like don't think about it and so like this idea that like i think it's problematic and at the same time, like, I think I am an inherently optimistic person, which is why I do the work I do, even though I'm also a very depressive person and my hope, I can get very hopeless. But I think that um, 
I do believe that people will grow to, you know, I, I do believe people have like a, a bottomless capacity to grow towards um, health and like kind of goodness. And like, you know, I don't, I don't believe that people are, I don't believe anyone is born inherently evil or damaged and can't heal and can't, um, you know, can't turn things around. And so I think like I have hope in, in other human beings and I have hope in like the earth and the universe to like regenerate itself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like hope in the short term and the, the, the human, human scale, time scale, like, I don't know, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's, I'm not even sure if it's realistic, but I do think we have to do the best we can, you know, in the present moment to kind of reduce the suffering of others as much as we can and like kind of fight against a system that actually like really interferes in that. Right. You know, and, and that's where I think, you know, therapy is a good place because therapy at best is about healing and we can help heal people and think about how we actually could help them then in turn become healers, mm-hmm. you know. That's great. Thank you. You had me re- thinking of uh, Kata Weingarten's writings on reasonable hope, right? Mm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, final question. Uh I just like to know, you know, maybe what books or media or ideas or what's capturing your attention these days. I mean, I'm really excited by the abolition movement and 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 sort of like underneath that the movement of restorative justice. Mm. Because I think you know, when I think about like working with white clients and trying to help them kind of understand how they're affected by whiteness and how to kind of undo it and interrogate it. And, but like really like create more health in themselves so they can be like a more healthy member of a society and help to heal, heal themselves and try to heal society. You know, I often think about like reparations and like, what would that look like on a psychological level? Like, what is it that people can do to heal their own psychologies, you know, and, 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 you know, do internal healing and how would that get transformed into something like reparative, you know, in a concrete way, you know, in addition to a more kind of like, if you're healthier, you're going to be like a healthier, you know, influence on the people around you, but sort of like, and so I think restorative justice is actually like a really useful or a, a hopeful or a kind of like a generative model for mm-hmm. that, because it really gets it like, well, first of all, it's very radical and very psychological in that it doesn't treat anyone as damaged or broken beyond repair. Right. And I mean, look, psychology has plenty of ways in which it treats people as damaged and broken beyond repair. Like psychology for has sure. its own history of white supremacy and embedded in it you know, in its act, you know, like, I mean, there's a lot of cleaning house that needs to happen, but, but I think the, the, the good part that we need to keep has to do with like acknowledging full humanity and like kind of developing ways that people can help other people, you know, heal and, and prevent future harm. And so restorative justice is really about that you know, and doing it in a place where the most intense kind of like consequences of racial injustice come to pass, which is in the legal system, the prison system. I mean, you know, I guess you could argue there's other places, but that's certainly one of the most intense. Sure. And so like you're bringing together people who have done harm and have experienced harm and bringing them together 
to create repair, perpetrators and victims. And that is really, to me, like such a powerful use of the human ability to heal, you know, and it's, I mean, it's, you know, and it's, and it's being done in a way that really is like doing it within the systems themselves. So it's not abstract. It's not, um, you know, it's not theoretical. I mean, it is theoretical, but then it's being put into practice. And it's sort of, I've applied, it's a theory that's being applied in the moment in a very, in a sort of, in one of the, you know, kind of hardest systems to work within, you know, like it's the most dehumanizing system that we have, um, or one of the most. And yet this is a place that people are working to bring this most like kind of healing capacity of the human heart. And so I think that that to me is really exciting because it's about people thinking way outside the box when it comes to like what, how we think of um, who gets to be redeemed, who Mm -hmm. gets to be worthy of, um, you know, who gets to come back out of, you know, being cast out, who gets to be rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. And I think if you think about the psychology of white clients, often there's a part of themselves that they just see as like completely irredeemable, you know, and that's the part that uses the substance or, you know, kind of dissociates or like, that's where all of the like pathology is and the the self-loathing is. And um, the idea that like, there isn't anybody outside, there isn't any part of ourselves and it isn't, there isn't any human in our community that can't be brought back into the fold and, and kind of reintegrated. That's such a, a powerfully psychological and, you know, sort of like um, it's operating at the level of the psychological and out in the world. Mm. And I think that's it. it, I, I find it. And I find it just as a movement really like beautifully articulated and like, you know, the people into the transformative justice movement, I, you know, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was going to tell you about um, this website, which I think is um, a really great introduction, Please, which yeah. is called um, transformharm.org. And it was conceptualized by and put together by this woman named Mariama Kaba, who is a very prominent prison abolitionist. But it's got tons of contributions from lots of different people. And um it's very beautifully put together and um, it's a great sort of access point. Great. Um, so that's transform.harm. And then, um, and then my friend's website that I want to give a, a shout out to, or a shout out Please. at is uh, it's called Maxime Clarity. So it's M A X I M E C L A R I T Y.com. And she does a, it's for, her name is Francesca Maxime. She does a lot of work in a um, anti-racist therapy, anti-racist writing. Uh, she does a podcast called Rerooted, mm-hmm. but she also has a lot a resources page on her website that has a ton of um, anti-racist and just like overall kind of resources for understanding American history and sort of like trainings and she's a great resource for a lot of this stuff. And I think for, especially for white therapists who want to get started, it's a great place to start. Wonderful. 
And I'll uh, link those on the show notes too. So, um, and your article as well. If anybody wants to find you, how do they find you? Or if they want to reach out to you and have any questions? Well, they can, I'm on Psychology Today. Okay. They can just Google, I'm on Psychology Today in New York City. And I'm also on Twitter, although like pretty, um, you know, like intermittently. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I don't know. I, I guess I'm ambivalent right now just because. You know, just because, but it's a uh, it's a Sleepy Kitty PhD, and it's L S L S L E E P I K I T T Y PhD. Great, that's my Twitter handle, Great. and that's pretty much it. I um, I haven't done too much. Um, I haven't done too much, like um, I guess internet presence, just because I've been um busy doing my practice and <laughs> other right. stuff, I guess. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, okay. Well, you're writing uh, excellent articles like whiteness on the couch. So yeah. That takes a lot like of your time. I can do some more writing. <laughs> and as soon as school starts again, I'll get back to that. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I could use some structural support awesome. from our society. Yeah. All right. Uh, Natasha, thank you very much for making the time. This has been a wonderful conversation and very educational and informative. And so thank you for that. Thank you so, so much. I love your podcast. I think it's fantastic. I recommend it a lot. Awesome. And um, yeah, I'm just really thrilled to have had this opportunity to talk. Great. Well, thank you again. All right. That's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. Please find us on all the social medias, Instagram at The Radical Therapist, Facebook at The Radical Therapist. Uh, Twitter at The Rad Therapist. Go find us. Check us out. If you want some stickers, just shoot me an email at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. Be happy to get you some stickers. And of course, uh, just a reminder, I am now on Patreon. If you want to support my work, get some uh, exclusive content, that kind of thing, go to Patreon, search The Radical Therapist, and your support is appreciated. So, uh, as always, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.